1: Hi, I'm uh, Sir Peter Wanless. I'm the chief executive of the NSPCC. Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Show and here's our host, Jonathan Bowman Perks. Well, Peter, thank you very much indeed. And and uh, firstly,
0: congratulations on recently getting your knighthood and thoroughly well deserved for the work your team and you and it's often, you know, it's given to the CEO, but you're very gracious to the amazing team you've got around you in the NSPCC one of the world's probably most famous charities. Um, but what a, what a life you've had. Um, you know, you and I have known each other for, for a few years now. You've been CEO for coming up eight years. And um, I know about your great passion about Somerset County Cricket Club, and you've given your heart and soul to them as much as you have to, to the NSPCC. Uh, also, you're now a trustee of the Five Rights Foundation Um, an advisory board member of the National Leadership Center, uh, looking into leadership in in public life, Uh, the CEO of the Big Lottery Fund before that, the director of the Department of Education in a number of different roles, Uh, your uh, time uh, studying at Leeds University, doing your BA in International History and Politics. So what a fascinating life you have. And let's perhaps talk about the NSPCC and particularly how a charity has coped in this pandemic because it's hit everybody very hard but particularly charities and people
1: giving money when they're they're feeling a sense of scarcity. Yeah so the NSPCC's uh, charitable purpose is to prevent cruelty to children and these last sort of 12 months or so have been really challenging times for lots of, of children and young people and people have talked about children being at risk of being the hidden victims of the uh, of the pandemic um, so for an organization like um, the NSPCC um, we have felt an incredible um, duty and responsibility to be there for children at the most challenging of times. We're a charity that's funded um, overwhelmingly from voluntary donations of one kind or another and so you can imagine the impact that uh, lockdown had on our ability to raise funds in many and varied ways that were planned this time last year, which weren't able to uh, to take effect. Um, so there was a vital need for our services and a real challenge for how we were going to organise ourselves to to deliver them. So it's been hard work, um, but um, I've tried to lead the, the organisation uh, against three really consistent principles in order. So the first is the charitable purpose. We must be the best we possibly can for children and young people and we must make the best impact we can for children. Secondly, though, we need to look after our people and one another. So this great array of volunteers and staff that are so committed to making a difference for children to really purposefully consider how they are balancing the pressures and challenges in their life, whether that's bereavement, um, vulnerable elderly relatives, um, uh, education from home, you know, all all these competing Mm. uh, pressures. So that kind of deliberate sense of um, uh, looking after our people and one another and that kind of wider well-being so we can be the best we can children and then thirdly securing the finances of the organization because as I say we depend so overwhelmingly on uh, 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 donations Um, how could we keep the show on the road because if we don't have a really careful eye to the to the the budgets and the money coming in and the money going out uh, we're not here to give the support we need for the children so those those principles have really endured I think and served us well through um, this prolonged um crisis and, mm. and keep coming back to the fact that it is a crisis for the children and young people that we're here to address as opposed to it being um a crisis for the charity yeah yeah that's
0: a, that's a lovely way of looking at it and and with all these variety of things that you've been involved in and you've, you've given yourself to where did where did the the values and the sort of the foundational makeup of you come from if we if we take you right back to yeah. the, the young Peter Wanless yeah. you know who's
1: doing what you're doing now making a huge difference well to lives... I was <laughs> sorry and um, how... well 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 I, I was always kind of fascinated by um politics and mm. and uh the idea of influencing important things and used to love sort of reading the newspapers and arguing with the teachers and 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 all of this Uh, sort of thing. So um, I I have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it but I failed the civil service fast stream entrance exams. Um, I was very good on the kind of maths questions um, which tested one bit of the IQ but my English skills weren't classically taught grammar. I could write you a really good story but I didn't necessarily put the words in the right order and so that annoyed me um, a bit but I, I got in To the civil service, and they offered me a job in the cabinet office, and I thought that sounded really glamorous. So, um, um, but I turned out I wasn't um, taking the minutes at the cabinet meeting. I was actually in a rather obscure bit of government called the Management and Personnel Office at the time, which was about the actually the leadership and management of the civil service, which very rapidly got um, shunted into the treasury, Um, and and there there I was in the in the treasury. So I can't pretend that there was a huge kind of It was the politics and the kind of game of politics that excited me and um, I quite rapidly got a job in um, private office working directly with ministers and I was working all hours. Most of my 20s I was working directly with um, government ministers, organizing stuff, kind of scheming, this, that and the other, in the middle of the treasury, um, in the middle of the spending rounds. It's a fantastic, extraordinary um, place to be. Saw all sorts of famous politicians uh, close at hand. Um, Fast forward a little bit, and to cut a long story short, I sort of ended up um, in the Department for Education, um, uh, and That was around about the time I became a father and those two things together, it suddenly became less of a game more a rather serious and important issue about whether and how children were being well served by the country that they were growing up in and that took my kind of engagement and interest in government to a whole new and more rewarding Level, which I think was, was I think was always there, and I often find myself now talking about my mum and the deep influence that she had on me because she had a really strong sense of um, moral purpose and set of and set of moral values, which were a complete frustration to me um, when I was growing up, and I never really appreciated um, my mum. She just sort of got in the way, and here I am now. Almost all the time, every day, talking and thinking about um, my mum, who never got to see me. You know, running a run in a charity, but 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 from the education department, I was you know two steps removed from the real action. I would say, sort of in the classrooms and in the and in the communities. Yeah. I moved from there to the lottery, um, which was one step removed, because that was distributing cached community groups and fantastic causes of one kind or another and then when the opportunity came to lead a a charity that was right at the center of um, giving children the start in life they deserve that was just amazing and so looking looking backwards there's an incredible logic to my career as I've moved progressively closer to children and the lives they lead Mm. and also progressively eastwards across London as it happens.
0: Yeah, Uh, and it is interesting that that rather eccentric uh, character, Steve Jobs, who on the one hand was brilliant, on the other hand was uh, was, uh, quite living an alternative reality kind of force field that he had. But he did say it's only later in life, and particularly as he knew he was dying, that when you look back over your life, you join the dots up going backwards and and you make sense of what goes on though at the time you might not know what your life meaning and purpose is and we'll talk about that later on um as you were uh growing up and and you know your son Bertie was born um what what would you say were were some of your proudest moments in your career and uh, maybe in your private life um and also what were some of the darkest moments and what did you learn from from both
1: um <sighs> I think um, my, my proudest moments have really been around, um, uh, have, have, have mostly become come later as I have influenced activities at a system level and at a kind of one-to-one level that have made positive life-changing contributions to Uh, to children and young people so Mm -hmm. that is one of the great privileges of of running a charity and delivering services like um, Childline um, Mm -hmm. that you are on a day-to-day basis um, providing an environment in which young people can come forward, share concerns and worries that they have, you can find lives that are completely off track and by putting together the right expertise and intervention help those young people see that's what's happening to them is not their fault at all and get them them back on track so so um the ability to be associated with that sort of uh, difference uh, it, it, probably my um proudest moments darkest moments I, uh, I i tend not to sort of dwell on the on on the negatives, I mean, there have been times when um, uh, <laughs> I've I felt completely kind of incapable and out, out of my depth. I, I was, you know, I got on very fast, notwithstanding that kind of false start in the civil service entrance exams. I got promoted quite quickly, and um, uh, there was a there was a time back in the mid nineties. Um, I uh, I was working for Michael Portillo. Uh, He was Secretary of State for Employment and he was looking for, they were called Head of Information um, at at the time. They'd be a kind of comms director now. And um, I thought, what a fantastic job. And he was struggling to find someone um, to do that job. I was running his private office. And um, I sort of joked, oh, I I could do that. And the the Permanent Secretary said, well, you should apply. and, and so I applied and I, I got it as a consequence of what was um, deemed to be a fair competition um, at the time. And suddenly I found myself with quite a big directorate of, of people that I was uh, responsible for, but quite a lot of enemies um, because uh, it was seen very much as a professional um, uh, operation. The Government Information Service had lots of people who were coming up sort of through that Profession who saw these jobs as theirs, and in most government departments, th- these areas were rather protected to the to the information specialists. And, and I felt very strongly that um, policy and communications needed to integrate really effectively. And it's not just the substance of the policy, but it's the way in which it connects with real people's lives that um, that, that that matters. And quite often, you would find this situation where. Um, The policy people would think they developed a brilliant policy and blame the comms people for it landing as a disaster. And the comms people would say, well, you've developed a policy which just um, doesn't doesn't work. So I felt I Mm. could do something about that. And I was at an age where you don't know what you don't know. And I'm quite proud of my audacity, actually, to put myself into that situation, be given that responsibility and then sort of get on with it, um, but but it was controversial. There were stories in the papers at the time about was this a sort of political appointment, uh, Portillo's favoured child or something. Um, and, and there was certainly, there was one evening when uh, there was a dinner at 10 Downing Street, which John Major, who I'd worked for previously um, as a treasury minister, um, was hosting an evening for a load of regional newspaper Editors, and uh, it turned out that we didn't know at the time that this was the evening before he effectively resigned and said, You know, put up or shut up. If anyone in the party really wants to run against me, then now's the time to do it. And he was trying out his lines, um, I think, on these newspaper editors and, and trying to convince them that the first, the sort of 92 to 95 was a brilliant period of reform for um, the Conservatives, notwithstanding the ERM disaster and and everything else. And he looked around the table and he was reaching a kind of crescendo of all these achievements that he was really proud of, John Major as as Prime Minister. And he said, but if there's one thing, one thing that really epitomizes what I have stood for as the Prime Minister, it's happened in the Department of Employment. Now, who's here from the Department of Employment? And look around the table and, everyone's heads are down and I'm thinking oh gosh that's me I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what he means I'd been in the job sort of three weeks and and when he saw it was me oh Peter and this <laughs> and he's winding the thought back sort of what five years or six years from when we worked really close together and he he must have thought well I really know this person so we'll be attuned he'll know the answer come on Peter tell everyone what is it that's happened in the uh in this part of employment that is such a life-changing uh consequence to so many people in this country and i i really didn't know and i told them denard a bit and these other heads of information who are around the table absolutely loving it because here's this upstart who's been put on the spot doesn't have a clue um what he's what he's talking about no one's gonna help me out. So I ummed and ah'd and mumbled and said something or other about um, the security screen is being removed in job centres or, or something. And and he said, well, Peter, you, you, that's sort of right. He said, but that's process. I'm talking about people. human be- uh, uh, Unemployed people are now treated as human beings. And this for him was a sort of encapsulation of its citizens charter and, and, and what he stood for. And, and I remember going home that night and lying in bed and just thinking, I've been in Number 10 Downing Street for dinner. The prime minister's asked me a question. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. There are all these people out to get me um, and I just blew it. And yeah, I, uh, that, so that was a really yeah. dark and, uh, uh, and low point.
0: But what, what a great story, but what did you learn from that that shaped you as a leader since then?
1: Well, don't uh, so uh, don't make, don't make assumptions um. <laughs> that people know the answer to questions that you have got to put them forward. That 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 relationships, you know, are, are in a particular moment in time. Uh, don't um, uh, pretend things that you don't really know. So I was careful to give an answer that I thought was sort of in the right place. Um, be be um, confident in yourself. So the next day, when I went into the office, I replayed the whole thing to Michael Portillo, who is my Secretary of State, and I put him on the spot in exactly the same way and said, You know, what is it in your department that has happened that epitomizes the brilliance of this government? And he, he looked He didn't at me, know that. What? <laughs> what? And I said, Unemployment people are treated as human beings. And he said, Oh, yeah, you know, I suppose. I suppose they are. And then later that day, we had the chief executive of the employment service come in um, for a meeting and Michael Portillo asked him exactly the que- same question he'd asked me and he didn't know either. And so, yeah. so something I really learned from him was that he was hugely supportive and loyal to me in those circumstances yeah. and yeah. felt that it was an unfair question. And, and, and he didn't only, he didn't just kind of um, say that and move on to the next thing. By taking that action with the Chief Mm. Executive of the Employment Service and us all making a bit of a kind of joke about it. But also taking some kind of pride in the fact that of all the things that the Prime Minister could have referenced it was something which really belonged to mm. um, the department. So that was so. There was, at the heart of all of this, there was a really good thing. And then the chief executive of the employment service could forget all that rubbish and nonsense and the, and the useless attempt that the um, head of information made to um, advertise how brilliant the department was. He could simply go off and tell everyone in the job centre network how proud he was of their great work and how they were changing the culture in the job centres.
0: Yeah there. Uh, what a great story. I will always remember that one. Thank you, Peter. And so as, as you're now dealing with children, thinking back to yourself as a, a young adult, uh, 16 years old, let's say, knowing what you know now, mm. particularly having worked in this field so long, if there was one bit of advice, if you travel back in a time machine and saw the young Peter Wandless, what, what yeah. would you set, tell yourself to, to focus on and, and not worry about?
1: Uh, I would, I would, I would say to be yourself and be confident in yourself and follow your interests, which actually lots of young people don't do. But I really did. Um, but I didn't know how important that was at the time. And I could very easily have um, been. I. Um, uh, led astray by trying to impress other people or be someone that that I wasn't but I followed my I followed my ambitions and my interests you know I really really loved cricket so I applied to universities in cities that had test cricket grounds. Um, I picked a course in modern history and politics because that was what I was really interested in. I went to London and I lived in the most Horrendous bedsit. When I look back and and think about it, now I would never subject my son to living in in that sort of squalor. But I really wanted to work in the cabinet office at that point, and I wanted mm-hmm. to, to live in London. Um, I've 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 I have I've been mo- overwhelmingly um, true to myself and follow my interests. I think I think I stayed in government longer than I really needed to. Um, <laughs> because they kept giving me really interesting things to do, more, mm. and more responsibility to the point where I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, I'm being exploited here. Yeah. Um, I, I could be doing something where I have more opportunity to shape the values and the culture and the context around doing But But essentially um, that following your instincts really matters and, and don't be afraid of failure. Another thing this is this sounds really trivial, but it was really important to me that, um, age 17 and a half, I failed my driving test, because I couldn't believe it when that happened. I thought I was completely indestructible and I could do uh, anything. Um, and when this person sat next to me and said, well, Mr. Waneless, I'm afraid you haven't reached the standard competent to be in charge of a motor vehicle. It's like, it was like, <laughs> it's like the end of the world. And I thought, who are you to say that? How can you possibly think that I am not the most brilliant driver ever? And and I just kind of sped round um, the course to the point where they ended up having to ask me about fifteen highway code questions instead of three because I've been going at forty-five miles an hour instead of thirty or whatever it might be. But that that really brought me down to earth. Um, and there, my dad did really help me to say, well, you know, it's not it's not the end of the world. You can take it again in a month and calm down and put things in perspective. And so that early experience of failure in something that that mattered, but it didn't matter that much.
0: Yeah, no, it's a lovely way. I think it's really quite important. Even now I find, I remember a time when I was trying to do public speaking, I was very anxious. And someone said to me, just go out there and fail, just go and be an absolute disaster on stage. Mm -hmm. And actually I wasn't, but I was prepared to and I could accept that it may be pretty poor. And I think that the willingness to fail and learn from it almost releases you from holding yourself to account. Going back to your your topic about um, morals and integrity and Mm -hmm. things like that you've talked about, um, we'll perhaps go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass, the eight eight points of the compass, and begin with moral uh, quotient, the integrity values, the foundational values. You know, you've worked in the world of politicians, which uh, when my friend, uh, Professor Roger Steer, was doing the moral DNA, he finds it hard to get politicians to fill it in. But other sectors, you know what their moral DNA is, and you've met some politicians who have a very strong moral code. And as we're seeing in the news at the moment, you meet some politicians who have a very movable true north, which seems to adapt depending on where they are to circumstances. Um, what's been your sort of top tip about values and beliefs? And and what have you learned from from sort of working with politicians, some who have strong moral codes and you might wanna mention some who you won't mention, but but were disappointing?
1: Well, firstly, I would say that overwhelmingly the politicians that I've worked with have been in it for the right reasons. And they've been incredibly um, driven um, they've been a bit more, um, I, I could never be a, I don't think I could ever be a party political person because I'm, I'm too good at seeing other perspectives, um, but, but I'm subject to that kind of drive uh, and, uh, and un- un- uncompromising sense of, uh, of direction, which sometimes I sort of struggle with as a, as a, as a citizen. I never watch Question Time because it just does my head in that, you know what most party politicians are going to say before they've, they've opened their, their mouths. it would be a much more interesting programme if you had charity chief executives on Question Time more often. But um, that's, a, that's another story. Um, but, but overwhelmingly, I think, you know, the, 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 the purpose and the desire to make positive change, I have seen in uh, almost, without exception, the, the politicians that I've worked with and the challenge has been to furnish them um, with the arguments and the you know and and the preparation um, and the context that they need to advance that agenda that they believe um, passionately in. And that yeah. that honesty and the ability to tell truth to power really really matters. And, yeah. and, and I've never I've, I've enjoyed the kind of hurly-burly and the cut and thrust of having those conversations with, with politicians, which I have found that they have respected. I think it's become very much harder to do in the sort of modern world where everything is moving so much faster and there seem to be no kind of secrets or safe spaces you know, to, to, to have those conversations and to, and to think aloud. Uh, without them popping up because someone has said almost before the cabinet meeting is finished, um, people are rushing to say who has said what and to get their version. I think that's really difficult to deal with and I don't envy the politicians or the civil servants operating in that context now. But yeah, I I, I think um, politicians on the whole um, get get a bad press. One that I was really... um, I mean, lots. So, there's lots of them that I could talk um, positively about, actually. Um, if you pick one, who would you pick? Well, um, for for a particular reason, I think Estelle Morris was a really great secretary of state for uh, for education because she had really kind of strong values grounded in the classroom. And what children thought and felt, and what teachers thought and felt, and the fact that her background was in the profession, I think, made her an incredibly um, well-informed and grounded secretary mm. of state. Which is ironic because she's about the only secretary of state I can think of who resigned because she said she didn't feel she was up to the job. Wow, um, wow. which is which is strange, isn't it? Because I I, I thought she was um, she was inspirational in her kind of engagement and emotional association Mm. with what the government was was seeking to achieve at that time. Yeah Uh, and really that that
0: takes me on nicely to the next element which is PQ meaning and purpose so uh, you know vocation a calling uh, a dharma if you were if you were speaking about it from from Indian background. Mm. What what gives you your sense of meaning and purpose in in the
1: life you've led thus far and are currently doing? Uh, well, I think this say this sense of being able to make a positive difference to to children, to see mm. young lives that have been desperately badly damaged through no fault of those children, and to be able to draw attention to that, yeah. um, to, to to demand change, and to provide uh, positive change and, yeah. and, 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 and not to do that because I am um, uh, kind of clever or, or more driven than anyone else but because of this incredible privilege that I have to sit at the front of this extraordinary family that is the, the NSPCC so literally hundreds of thousands of people from all sorts of walks of life who say we Dislike cruelty to children, and we want to do something about it. So my my authority and ability to influence comes from their passion and their and their many and varied purposes. If we if we line them up, they'll have all sorts of different views about what should be done, when, and why. And one of the hardest issues in this job is to synthesise the specific priorities and areas of attention where the NSPCC can make most unique yeah. and distinct contribution. But but, but it's that, um, yeah, that, 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 that sense of collective endeavor um, mm. and the opportunity <clears throat> to represent um, all these people who, yeah. who share a passion that gives me real purpose. And, right. and, and as a leader, I enjoy building coalitions and alliances of unlikely perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, together to achieve more than those people ever imagine that yeah. they can do on their own, and 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 that's what the NSPCC is. is all yeah,
0: about. you remind me when I worked for Field Marshal the Lord Inge, Peter Inge, when he was head of the army, and I was his, uh, I was in his private office. I suppose you'd call it that, uh, but I was just the ADC, the, the bag carrier. And uh, but I I, I I saw him talk about the coalition of the willing, getting a group of people who are willing to. To contribute, and I thought that was a very powerful statement. Uh, Talking about the different people you've been with, you 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 are leading through an endemic, because it's not going to be here just for a short time and then over. It's going to be uh-huh. with us for for some time. Health quotient, um, mental health, physical health, well-being. Um, what about how you looked after your own health and well-being, mentally and physically? <laughs> and you're laughing, and 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 also the health of your organization and your team how the people look after themselves as they're under such mental strain
1: well i'm laughing because you you know jonathan that um there have been times when we've had conversations you've been banging on to me about the importance of sleep and the importance of exercise and and i I don't really (laughs) value those things in the context of everything else that is that is going on and i don't know if that's about luck or or what but when, when when something gives the thing that gives is my um, looking after myself in normal circumstances. Now, as it happens during this um, prolonged kind of lockdown and period of, of social isolation, I did see myself getting larger and larger and heavier and heavier and wider and wider. And I told myself, "I've got to, I've got to do something." So I, I have done, couch to five k, and I do now um, uh, run from. Uh, from from time to time and not only under a sort of sense of uh, of obligation um, I uh, I do I really believe in um, leading a life of variety and I think as chief executive we are hugely privileged in our ability to dip in and out of all sorts of issues and all sorts of aspects and, and dimensions of an organization so I think that is really good for my health and well Being Being a Chief Executive suits me. As you've referenced earlier, I love cricket. I watch a lot of cricket uh, online in real life. Um, I think about it, I read about it. I'm, I'm a complete badger when it comes to that sport. I love music, um, uh, I love um, watching um, uh, box sets of, of, of one kind or another. So um, I keep myself, um, uh, healthy by not concentrating on too on a single issue and obsessing uh, yeah, uh, yeah. For, for long periods of time. So some people clear their minds by going for a long run or a long bike ride, and I think I clear my mind by thinking about cricket or watching cricket yeah. or, or it, it, watching succession uh, or whatever that that might be. Uh, I have recognised through the pandemic that the well-being um, of our people is vitally important and if i reflect on the relative importance i attach to that whole issue of the wider well-being of volunteers and staff um prior to the pandemic i think i have learned through this period that paying diligent attention to that uh really really matters and so going back to those principles of the children and the people and the finances yeah that isn't always the leader I have been. I've had the, you know, I spent the first few years of my life as you've heard in the treasury. So the finances <laughs> have, have sometimes um, taken greater priority over the people, perhaps. yeah. yeah. Um, they all they all really matter. And when you're yeah. running an organization that depends 90% on voluntary donations, if you're not spending a lot of time thinking about the money, you've got a problem, but um, yeah, I think that sort of systematic regard for the, the well-being of people and, and appreciating and understanding if it's not, you know, cricket that, <laughs> that they need, um, if they haven't got the privilege in the variety of uh, job that yeah. I have got, where do they get their yeah. release yeah. from? I, it really, really matters.
0: And there's no doubt about it, I've seen many of the leaders I've talked to, either they themselves have had mental health issues um, exacerbated during this period, or or they've got a number of their people whose mental health has suffered. But uh, on a more lighter note, you reminded me back of a a good old friend of mine, Alistair Matheson, who was a very um, urbane Oxford University sort of academic officer in the Scots Guards. And uh, I was in Cyprus doing the mountain marathon training for it and constantly running. And i went out one morning and Alistair was in his, uh, in his sort of Panama and sort of uh, blazer and things. I said, Alistair, are you gonna come out for a run? And he goes, run, Jonathan. Officers don't run, it panics the men.
1: and so yeah he put me in my place um that you didn't one of the things you did not mention in my cv which actually was really important to my um development and understanding of leadership was i did the advanced management program at insead oh wow and then i was exposed there to leaders from all sorts of other walks of life you know there are only Mm. 80 of us and there were only two people from the public sector across the globe me and someone responsible for the Singapore sewage system Um, and I I remember a a particular Belgian banker who was on that program and we were encouraged to think about health management on that course and for a while I drank a lot of water and I did get my heart rate up for 30 minutes every day and I did do my three-minute workout when I got up in the morning and these were really good sort of disciplines but this chap he was similar he sort of said um uh, he was not at all interested in sport and he wasn't going to do any sport ever because if you did sport, you got injured. Um, yeah. Too many of his people were taking time off because they were injured. But he did agree that a couple of glasses of wine, red wine a day minimum, was a vital part of the programme.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's since been proved that a little bit of red wine and the right portions can help in some cases. Um, EQ, emotional and social intelligence. Um You've worked with and come across a lot of particularly bright people who sometimes are not so aware of their impact on other people or can't read other people like a language. They're just yeah. not picking up what goes on. It's perhaps a skill they haven't developed either through birth or or, or just the environment they've been in where, where IQ has been valued far more than EQ. But what have you done mm. to, to learn about reading people, picking up, that finger spitzgefühl as the Germans call it the fingertip feel about about people or or the mood of a room or what the organization's like what have you done to develop that so
1: yeah so this is a really interesting one I think one-to-one with people of extreme influence I learned that from a very early age because I was working with politicians so my kind of instincts and understanding and ability to get where the boss is coming from or what the power shift needs to be to influence something, um, both intellectually and emotionally for that individual, I've had loads of experience of. Um, As I kind of grew out and into organisations where I needed to build teams that knew and understand, stood one another and appreciated one another, that reading of the room uh, that ability to see and understand and appreciate people's motivations I'm in awe of people that that do that and have I've found people that can do it really well and I've learned from them and the other thing that you get in the NSPCC of course is all these incredible um, social workers and and therapists whose job is absolutely professionally to know and understand and appreciate people's Feelings, so I, I kind of got them uh, around me, both to remind me and advise me um, mm. on on that sort of stuff. Because as an individual myself, I, my instinct is to appreciate intellectually the vital importance of understanding people's emotions, as opposed to. <laughs> Naturally, yeah. appreciated uh, people's emotions. I'm sure Lady Wanless would um, confirm this. <laughs>
0: That's a lovely way of putting it. And then taking it from emotional and social intelligence on one to one people, it, the the what do we call cultural quotient, which is uh, we've brought that in as a as an element rather than IQ, which is um, still important. But but I think these days cultural intelligence quotient, the ability. To recognise diversity, equality, and inclusion of different cultures, different people, yeah. different societies, different countries. Yeah, um, you're having to deal with this all the time. What's been your learning about reading a culture of an environment or or different uh, ethnic backgrounds or whatever it might be? Uh, yeah. So, so
1: I think I, I've recognised for uh, a. a a long time and the INSEAD experience was a really good kind of illustrator of that actually appreciating and understanding people from all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different business disciplines and everyone was very different um, from me and and we did a lot of kind of deliberative thinking about how you build teams with different sorts of um, uh, skills um, in, in the NSPCC, we're doing a lot of deliberate work now around um, inclusive leadership and, and, and asking ourselves, how, how do you build a really kind of inclusive and diverse culture? And, and I've got sort of three points on a, uh, on, on a triangle, which we're paying attention to really. So, so, so one is the diversity, that, that, that you've referenced. So where and how can we access diversity of personal um, experience and history, professional experience and history, experiential experience and history and institutional experience and history. So that's one big kind of cluster of, of things. Secondly, we've been doing as senior leaders sort of 360 uh, feedback on um inclusive qualities so it, it, in some ways it doesn't matter what I think about my authenticity my collaborative working, the degree to which I create a sort of sense of belonging compassion courage what do other people experience of that so we're, we're trying to create a, a lot of intelligence and insight around those aspects of inclusive leadership so we can talk to one another as a team about what we are getting from one another and then thirdly that that more sort of how to create a culture of safety in the organization so people Mm. feel that this is a place where they um, belong and and have a home and none of this is uh, is at all straightforward and I don't pretend for a minute that um, I or the NSPCC have got it cracked but I think you know a, a lot of deliberate time is being spent by us as a leadership team now thinking about these things. Um, whereas um, the temptation is because our work is so urgent and so important and so vital for children who need us now and of this moment. And because we can kind of bang the drum about the moral purpose and the urgent need and vital uh, salience of our mission, which is lots of people will, will agree with, if you're not careful, you can race towards the mission and use that as an excuse to forgive all sorts of suboptimal behaviors and cultural issues yeah. of, of, of one kind or another. Um,
0: yeah. It's a really good point to make, and particularly these days, psychological safety for people in an organization, in a team, not only just for the children and the environment yeah. they're in, but, but people that can actually speak out and say what needs to be said without fear of retribution or an impact on them. Going from that on to the next element of uh, the uh, Inspiring Leadership Compass, what makes inspiring leaders and high-performing leaders, because it's linked to performance, Um, you and I have spoken before about resilience uh, against Mm. adversity, and I'm not just talking about when at 17 and a half you get told that you're not the world's greatest uh, motor racing driver uh, and you have failed, (laughs) but but when you haven't had your way and you've had setbacks or challenges as a CEO of a charity for the last eight years and you get knocked back and you think you've just got it going and things don't work out. I was telling you about enjoying Sir Ernest Shackleton's book about uh, the, the endeavor and it stuck in the pack ice and he didn't make it across. And then they had to try and escape on bit of ice flows and they kept almost dying and losing, almost losing people, but he kept his whole team together. Then they got to Elephant Island. Then they had to get South Georgia in a 20 foot long boat in the worst seas in the world. And they somehow with a tiny little, uh, sextant, they managed to make it. If they missed it, they were gone. The next place was South Africa. And thank God they made it. But they landed on the wrong side of the island. And they had to go over the mountains on a route that no one has ever done since 1955. They did it with polar explorers and mountain gear. And they said they did it with a 20-foot rope and some boots with some nails dragged in. So yeah. that that is adversity and resilience. But what's been your... I don't know your top
1: tip uh, about resilience uh yes yeah, so I've got I've got two um really uh, and I both of them I need to remind myself of on a on a regular basis because life is not as extreme as you describe but but leadership is all sorts of things going wrong and needing to kind of face up or face up to new challenges the the entire time so the first kind of um, tip or or insight is if it were easy they wouldn't need to employ you to be the leader of this complicated organization so Mm. kind of you know get over it what do you think you're there for if it's not to help people resolve and work through these problems that's why you've been employed and that's really easy for me to say back to you but it's you, you you need someone to remind you of that on a pretty regular basis. And that links to my second point, which is at moments when um, I've been at the point of almost feeling kind of overwhelmed or not able to see um, my way through something. um, Becky, uh, who now to be referred to as Lady Wanless, is, is not really interested in the detail of what I, I'm up to. Um, she has completely different um, uh, interests and gets on with, 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 with her life. So we're not the sort of kind of couple who sit around the table and discuss in great detail um, the issues and challenges of the nation and what the NSPCC needs and wants to do. But she's just really good at saying to me in moments like that, you're doing your best. You're good at what you do. <laughs> thank you very much yeah that's that's. I a, love that's, you too that's, that's and, that, support. and uh, yeah and that that's really helpful so okay. having someone whoever that might be who you respect who just reminds you that you're trying as hard as you can and you're doing the best you can and um, um, um and what more can can people ask for and if, and if they're not happy with it then don't be happy with them you know go off and do something else
0: yeah, uh, really help, just help 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 them find yeah. their yeah help help them find their happiness elsewhere was a term one of my friends used to to help them just go yeah. where they want to be. Uh, the, the last two of the compass before we talk about executive teams, the book, and then the top tips is, um, you you've done three hundred and sixty um and had feedback on yourself brand. I'm thinking about brand personal brand reputation. Yeah, what have you learned when you've done three hundred and sixty about whether it's useful, uh, whether it was valuable to you, and and how
1: you encourage others to do that uh I think it is useful when you get over the initial sort of instinct of why did they say that about me who was it I must find them <laughs> um uh one of the things that I have learned is that I uh, and I've had this a number of times it's another one this is ones you just need to be reminded of I think of myself as a really kind of open and available um leader and uh uh any problem come and talk to me about it we can we can work it through and uh i constantly underestimate and this gets more acute the 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 higher up an organization you go and god imagine being a knight of the realm um and people decided to kind of take the initiative to come and talk to you about some little problem because then they've got it's not as simple as just saying i'm available Um, Because some people, more extrovert characters, will really take advantage of that, and some, and other people will kind of sit back and feel a bit, um, well... uh, not not take advantage of it and then you get unequal levels of engagement across an organization so um a 360 lesson to me is always to try and put myself into places that i'm not expected to be and and show people um who i am and 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 not make it all their responsibility effective communication is a is a two-way thing that's very good and and
0: then clearly the nspcc is all about legacy leaving the legacy for each single child that their life is better than it would have been and the cruelty and the unfortunate situations they were born into or found themselves in
1: yeah
0: but what would you like your legacy to be uh, just as ceo of the nspcc what what is it you hope you would leave behind you that's better in the stewardship than than
1: you found it um i i think um a really strong sense of um, connection between the kind of soul and purpose of what the charity is about and the actions that we are taking uh, is is one. I want to protect the um, authority and authenticity um, of of the brand so that when there are conversations about um, the abuse and neglect of children the NSPCC's um, expertise and insight is is drawn upon, and I think we're doing I think we're doing well at that. But there's you know, no guarantee or reason why we should be listened to. We're tiny in relation to the overall child protection um, system, so we've got mm. to build and retain that um, that credibility, and you know, good reputation can be lost overnight, as we know. Mm. Mm. So so sustaining that. Um, uh, is is really important. And I think just maintaining this sort of sense of the NSPCC belonging to the people. you know, I, I am the temporary steward who is connecting all these incredible people who want to make a positive difference to children with all these children whose lives can be improved as a consequence of what they're up to. So mm-hmm. to keep that kind of, transmission mechanism uh really strong for the for the next leader that's great
0: and then let's talk about teams um i mean we could talk about cricket teams but i think you you might i'm sure you'll throw in an analogy or two about cricket into this Mm -hmm. one but but you at times will have inherited uh in different roles that you've done a team that's slightly toxic with maybe an individual or two who turns the team so there's a lack of trust and they're not collaborating and helping each other and they're a bit on their own agendas or someone does something which really breaks the, the sense of psychological safety that you're so keen on having. What have you done um, that's taken it from being yeah. any, and, and you know, clearly don't mention the guilty, but just any stage of your career, what have you seen that's worked well or taking it from toxic to, to high performing?
1: Uh, well, better out than in is really important. So uh, if people are seeing and and experiencing something, they need to vocalise that and it then has to be dealt with or um, the team has to change. Um, So um, uh, creating the the safe space in which people can ideally share with one another if there's an erosion of trust or respect. Um, But if not, as the leader, you know, you have a responsibility to help them get that out. Um, And there have been occasions when I have, you know, deliberately worked through with people, what is it about this individual that you don't trust? What is it that they need to do for you to appreciate the contribution they're seeking to make to the to the organization and that can work really well and if it doesn't work really well then you need to take a another route but y- what you can't tolerate is you know prolonged periods of individuals seeing themselves as more important than the home team yeah no that's a, a lovely way of putting it um penultimate question is uh,
0: a good book that you've read on leadership in the last couple of years that you think people would enjoy and, and it can't be a cricket book
1: i <laughs> uh, see so i really don't read um leadership books and it's back to this sort of um having the variety um yeah. in my life I, I can't think of uh anything I, ra- I rather i prefer to get your latest 20 tips jonathan <laughs> size for me so that i can read detective novels or or, or cricket books but no let's I mean, stay with that stay with that okay. uh, joking aside I, I stopped you there because actually
0: we draw on learning for the way we lead from many areas so if you were to pick something that's been quite influential on the way you show up as a leader
1: from any kind of book what would it be recently yeah well I, I probably I probably I will I will go to a uh, I will go to a, a leadership book because I haven't read it but I read an article in the paper which came from it and that was <laughs> Matthew Side's, um rebel ideas and and he talked about teams um, that spend too much time agreeing with one another and as opposed to teams that have diversity of opinion and, and argue out a solution which sometimes might need to be taken through by, you know, majority vote. And he makes an observation in in that particular bit of the book that even though people might feel a little bit unhappier and less good about themselves and the way forward in the diverse group, the decision is better. And and I took some considerable um, comfort from that because if, if I go back to myself as that leader, Um, back in the kind of head of information days when I suddenly inherited all these people. I didn't really have a great deal of experience of of managing large teams, my instinct was then always to try and find the kind of common ground and make people happy and and build consensus, and and that's what I bring to this kind of coalition building of trying to get, you know, the willing together to better meet the needs of children, but when you're running an organisation, you've got to have that really gritty conversation, you've got to learn how to disagree well with, with one another, and if that means people do feel a little bit uncomfortable with one another because they don't always Arrive at the at the same route. That is okay because Matthew tells me from his research that that that's better for children, and that's that's really good for me because fundamentally I want to do the best thing we possibly can for children. That's more important than everyone feeling happy at the end of the meeting. Yeah, very
0: good. Well, before we go into the top tip, I'm going to just ask you a curveball one. you have a wonderful wild dress sense and here we are for those who can watch the video with you and your your amazing shirt that you're wearing today or a top yeah that's fantastic uh, and you've also been on some some great interviews that you've done you're about to do an, an interesting one what have been a couple of the interesting ones the next one included uh interviews that you've done asking you about your views on on your particular charity and your your views on it
1: oh um well, I've, i i've I've met uh, all sorts of, um, yeah, interesting people. Um, quite recently, we did a sort of exclusive event where we had Alistair Campbell come along and talk about um, uh, mental health and, 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 and wellbeing, but we got him to play the bagpipes at the end and he played the European national anthem oh. on his bagpipes, which, you know, that that, that's really entertaining in and of itself, but in terms of a kind of fundraising or special experience for a charity, that's like gold dust. So yeah, yeah. to get to get people along and then see some, so so he kind of went the extra mile for us. That 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 was really good. Um, I don't I don't know any very much about um, rugby at all, but I've learned a lot more as a consequence of the many generous people from the world of rugby who support. NSPCC and I, I sat next to Johnny Wilkinson once and he had a real aura about him and he's deeply interested in um, some of these motivational things and how you find calmness at moments of really heightened tension and, and that's mm. so that was that was a fascinating yeah, um, yeah. opportunity. Oh, there, there are loads of them. Yeah, you've
0: you've been very lucky and and you've made your luck and and you've gone out there to create some amazing events that raise, uh, with colleagues who've come up with the ideas, but you've backed them. Uh, So I congratulate you on that. So let's go to your final top tip and then we'll just say goodbye at the end of that. But um, if you just introduce yourself again, uh, Sir Peter, and um,
1: share your top tip. Okay, so I'm uh, Sir Peter Wanderthus. I'm the chief executive of the NSPCC, My top tip would be that in any situation, um, as a leader, you bring energy um, and it can be positive uh, and supportive and enabling of people, or it can be negative and corrosive of any situation. And in my experience, showing up with positive energy gets the best out of people.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Peter Wallace. It's been fantastic having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. I wish you every success with the work you're doing with your colleagues with the NSPCC. Thank you very
1: much. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.